welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to Podcast 202. Uh, this is going to be an awesome podcast. I've been looking forward to this. Unfortunately, I've been, well, I should say, unfortunately, it is fortunate that I've been in the woods and I've been utilizing this technology, but I've got Lieutenant Colonel Tim O'Neill, PhD. I'm reading your, he's on the phone already, by the way, folks, but I'm reading his, his, uh, his bio here, which, which I was given by a mutual friend. But uh, you were named the father of digital camouflage um, from using the pixelation of macro and micro patterns, uh, you know, the first digital pattern, and earned a Ph.D. from the University of uh, Virginia and is the leading camouflage expert due to his understanding of visual is it biophysics, I guess? Yep. And human biophysics, yeah. <laughs> and human visual performance. Um, so you're instrumental in the design of the camo for the Canadian Department of Defense and the U.S. Marines, the U.S. Army. And at Gore, you use the same knowledge that you have for the creation of the pattern that I've been using uh, in the Gore Optifade. So thank you, dude, for coming on. I appreciate that. Or I should oh, say, it's, sir. It's my pleasure. I'd like to uh, uh, mention, uh, however, that... Uh, my influence on the uh, Canadian Defense Force design was incidental. Uh, that was uh, they did that pretty much on their own, and I have to congratulate them because they did a very good job. Oh, awesome! I appreciate the the honesty and clarification. Sure, but I'm very, very honestly. If can I can I back up a little bit because you and I haven't sure. talked yet, so I want to. I want to step back a little bit and just let you know that um, previously for 14 years, I was with a different um, a different brand than Sitka, and one of the mm-hmm. and that brand um, had their own pattern, uh, which I really enjoyed and didn't really think that I was going to find something that was as effective. Um, it was a, the Ridge Reaper Baron pattern from Under Armour. And I really mm-hmm. liked the pattern because I felt like it really gave good depth compared to a lot of um, patterns out there. Which I'm a big, I'm a big photographer and videographer, so I get to see a lot of my my photos and you know change the color scale of them, and then I get to see true depth. And then also with just my experience as a hunter, um, and I do a lot of bow hunting, so I'm closer. I do a lot of spot and stalk hunting. So I've just had a lot of experiences where I feel like there's very few patterns where animals tend to see through you. And there's very, and then there's also patterns where, you know, you literally look like a rat turd in a sugar bowl. Um, you know, something that, something that looks like cool sticks and leaves when you're on a shelf looking at it right close to your face, that just becomes a burnt stump at a, at a certain distance. So I didn't really, f- I wasn't, really that um i wasn't that i guess blown away by like sick pattern when i saw it up close 
but I can tell you that my what the pattern has done for me in the field, and once I've had some of the patterns um, science described to me, you know, secondhand through John Barklow, um, I've started to realize that there's there is science behind the pattern, and when it comes to my experience in the field. I am super, super happy with this right now. So it was kind of leading me to one further step of why is this working better than what I thought it was going to, which eventually led me down this road to where I'm lucky enough to have you on the phone. So take it away. Like what's the, what's the background, the basis and, you know, the conceptual, you know, evolution of this pattern. Okay, uh, I'll uh, spare you and, and any other listeners the uh, the pain of going through the biophysics of this thing, which involves what we call spatial frequency power spectra and various other things that are very mathematical in nature, so I'll put it in a more intuitive way. Uh, most of the hunting patterns are mimicry patterns. Uh, you look at them and you see branches and leaves and twigs and shades of this and that and the other. And uh, they work very well if they're against that exact kind of background. Uh, what we do in analyzing the, uh, uh, the, the place and the purpose of the pattern and the animal uh, whose vision is going to be modeled is we, we look at the environment and we extract from the environment what we call the invariant properties. And these are the things that are characteristic, the colors, uh, the textures that are generally anywhere in the uh, in the environment are going to match, uh, and so it may not look like a painting of the woods, but it's taking those invariant properties of the woods or the scrub uh, or uh, 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 snow uh, rock or snow background or whatever, depending on. Uh, on where you're going to be hunting, and it emphasizes those. Uh, now, the actual designs originally were done by Hyperstealth Technology up in Canada uh, by by Guy Kramer, who has a, a very powerful set of computer algorithms that can take that information and translate that into a pattern design. Uh, now, when we were eventually originally teamed up to deal with hunting patterns for the first time, uh, Guy uh, provided the design uh, and production expertise, uh, and uh, we had uh, Jay Knight, who is a, uh, a wildlife biologist. Uh, he was at, uh, I believe, at Woods Hole at the time or somewhere around there. Now he's out uh, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, who uh, gave us the information necessary uh, to model a vision of uh, uh, game animals and me and I've been working uh, <clears throat> now for close on to 45 years in uh, camouflage design and theory uh, and most of my work has been for military applications military applications are very different and they're more difficult to design than hunting applications and the reason is quite simply that just to use white-tailed uh, deer as an example, uh, whatever you may say about uh, the Virginia white-tailed deer, he does not deploy 
into the desert on the other side of the world. He pretty much stays where he is, pretty politically sophisticated that way. And so we can, if we're going to uh, design a pattern for deer hunters, uh, uh, for bow hunters, for people in tree stands or anything like that, we can model the environment in which the deer lives and match that to how the deer sees the world. Now, we can uh, uh, apply some of the general design theory uh, that I brought with me after so many years of research uh, into hunting worlds, but we have to modify it slightly uh, because we're, uh, we're dealing with not how the hunter sees the pattern, but how the game animal sees the pattern. And that's a very different world. Uh, we got a lot of good uh, information from Jay about uh, how the patterns, uh, how, how the visual system of a deer or an elk or any of the class of animals, what we call ungulates, which are uh, basically cud chewers. All the deer fall into the deer family falls under this uh, general classification, and the deer sees the world in a different way. Uh, I want to talk just a little bit about the differences in the deer's visual system. Their color vision is not the same as ours. They're rather sensitive to yellow. They don't do very well with blue. Uh, and when you filter their world, use, generally using a computer image, you see it looks, it looks kind of gray with uh, kind of uh, yellow and green highlights here and there. Uh, also, their uh, their ability to focus on the world is a little different. They see uh, the world with a little bit of a blur. They could probably just maybe pass the vision test for a driver's license, though they don't drive very much, obviously. Uh, and uh, in addition, the a human eye, the... Uh, the very, very high resolution and color sensitivity in the human eye is clustered in a little small, uh, spot right in the middle of the retina, which is in your center of vision. Uh, there are evolutionary reasons for this, but that's where you get your color vision, uh, and that's where you get the very high uh, focus, the high resolution. Deer, the deer's eye doesn't work that way. Instead of having that little spot in the middle, we call it phobia, they have what we call a visual streak, and it goes horizontally in the middle of the eye. Uh, so it's a, an area rather than a point. And the reason for that is most of the threat for a deer is going to be picked up along the horizon. It's not going to be on the ground in front of them, uh, and it's not going to be flying overhead. It's going to be uh, down on the uh, on the horizon, and that's why the... Uh, the visual system works that way. So we looked at all these things. Uh, we decided what, uh, uh, which of the principles that we've used successfully for military camouflage could be applied to hunting. And then we came up with examples for tests. Now, I will say right now, and I, I appreciate your uh, the amount of time that you spent looking at these patterns and trying to get an intuitive idea of how they work. Uh, I have never and will never <clears throat> recommend a pattern based on an eyeball analysis. 
the only thing that matters, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, rigorous, accurate test results. Uh, the reason for this is perception is uh, a very complex process, and it doesn't involve consciousness until the very last stage. It's all basically neuroscience and vision science. And if you're looking at something and thinking about it, then you're adding higher levels of analysis that uh, really don't make much difference when you're trying to detect a target to see if there's something out there in the woods. The other thing we have to consider is that uh, we can pretty well model what a deer sees. Uh, and the actually the, uh, the work, it's kind of interesting, uh, the work that was done uh, to come up with uh, an estimate of color vision in deer actually involved having deer follow uh, what's called a T-maze. They go down a a path and they turn left or right to get some food. Yep. Uh, and there, there would be marks, uh, uh, markers of different colors on the left and right. And if they could learn to find the food correctly on the first try with a color, uh, the researchers knew they could see that color. Uh, they now, uh, Jay told me this, uh, this was an, ex an excruciating process because deer are not very, not very cooperative experimental subjects. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> they really, uh, they really kind of get ticked after a while. Yeah, no but uh, we have a pretty, pretty good idea of how they see the world. What we don't know is, uh, with any certainty, is what they think about what they see. Right, and that's why we need hunters involved in this process. Uh, because if there's anybody who understands how a deer thinks. It's a hunter who's had a lot of experience in hunting a deer. Or for that matter, a, a turkey or a wild boar or whatever the, uh, the animal is we're designing for. Uh, so this took a lot of testing. Uh, when our first contracts, which uh, were with uh, uh, W.L. Gore Associates, uh, used a computer vision test series that was uh, basically... Uh, self-paced. You got behind the computer, you uh, used the four, five, and six characters on the uh, uh, the number pad, and uh, the the test was uh, applied automatically. Uh, you saw a whole bunch of different slides with different backgrounds, and uh, most of them had a target in one camouflage pattern or another superimposed on it. And so we were able to home in on the best design features. And that's how we came up with the first uh, uh, first Optifade designs. Now, since then, we've done similar work. Uh, uh, the original Optifade was a sort of a Western scrub uh, background uh, that was probably uh, fits hunting elk uh, out in the, the, uh, the high country in the West. Was that the, uh, was that the open... The open pattern, open country pattern. Yeah, I believe I believe that's what it's called now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, I still have some some items that are printed in that uh, at home, uh, though I haven't hunted in many years. Uh, but we looked at the uh, visual systems of different kinds of of other different kinds of game animals, wild boar, 
uh, waterfowl. Uh, waterfowl are, are wild and wonderful critters. Yep. Uh, and we had to come up with an entirely different uh, pattern approach to them. And oddly, it's one that doesn't look right to, at least in the first designs, it didn't look right to hunters because they don't see the world the way a, a, a duck or a teal or a Canada goose sees the world. So we actually had to make some changes in it so that it looked better for the hunters without making it easier for the uh, uh, for the waterfowl to see. So that was kind of an interesting uh, process in itself. Yeah, I agree. What else can I tell you? Well, you're you're going down some great paths because one of the things that I appreciate is that you do understand, um, which I figured you would, is you know real world application. You know, s- there's science to a certain point, but then there's also a point where you have to be able to to actually experience it in the field of, you know, maybe scientifically this should have something doesn't or. Maybe it works better than what we actually thought. Um, and I can I can tell you from my experience, there's really been – there's only ever been three patterns in my experience as a bow hunter where I have had animals continually, like I told you, like detect a sound or a movement and then, you know, they fixate on me – and then you can see their eye look at me where the, I'm sure they're pinpointing sound or they pinpointed a movement. And then you can almost see their eyes look left of you or right of you. And then they're looking past you, even though you're right there, you can see that they're almost looking as if someone's not paying attention to you. You know, they almost have a different look. Mm-hmm. Um, and the subalpine on my Western hunts, I 100% had this experience many times in just the past few months. Um, Surprisingly, with the EV2 pattern, which is designed for the whitetail side of things, uh, one of the things that I don't like about it is because it's actually not, I would say it's arguably not appealing to the human eye because, for example, um, I was successful in, in shooting a couple whitetails these past few weeks. And when I'm taking just my field photos, the pattern on the ground looks so contrast to the environment um, mm-hmm. that it's almost like, you know, you look like you're wearing the wrong thing in this in your recovery photo. However, when I've taken pictures of it in its element which is from an elevated position and in the tree then the Mm -hmm. pattern has a completely different experience and when animals hear me or see movement and they've looked up at me which actually the last uh two animals that i've that i've taken um one of them i say i've taken them but one of them was my wife's one of them was mine. We were hunting down in Oklahoma. All the leaves are off. Um, we were limited to where we could get elevated, and we were in some, like, Bodart trees. Um, mm-hmm. bo- both cases, we were less than, than 14 feet off the ground, very exposed, and surprisingly got pinpointed on movement multiple times, but then the animals without additional movement would accept what they saw there 
and continue on without being spooked from the visual aspect. So I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a huge believer um, in their interaction. I'm just you know I'm really curious as to you know what I guess what your feeling is on a little bit more on the importance of like what really creates the depth to the pattern and is that depth Mm -hmm. a big part of what's creating this experience or is there something else to it other than that? Well, sure. Uh, uh, I'll use as an example the tree stand pattern. Yes, sir. The main difference between the tree stand and the, the, uh, the lower level uh, patterns is the matter of brightness contrast. Now, imagine you're a uh, a white-tailed deer. Uh, it's right around this time of year, naturally. And in fact, I've got a, a three-acre yard uh, that runs uh, from my house, the back door of my house, down to the Chattahoochee River, and uh, the, the place is overrun with deer. They're kind of obnoxious actually uh getting arrogant i can help you but you know we uh we we give them a little bit of feed to cut down on winter kill and we don't mess with them uh there used to be a tree stand nearby but uh the guy who hunted there uh the neighbors wouldn't let him on the property anymore or something they had some kind of dust out in any case if you're looking from a low level and you look in, look up into the trees you're going to see a lot of the sky mask behind Right. Uh, and that's why we have the higher contrast. Uh, so that, uh, uh, it's, it, as, as you've grasped already, it's really, it's really a complicated process. And it, you almost have to coordinate it with, uh, with the deer or the, the turkey or the, or the goose or something. Because, uh, you know, the, what the hunters bring in is, the knowledge of how to avoid uh, what we call conspicuity. They, they, they have to be not noticed as something different from the background. And uh, for, for deer, what are, what are the most important things first? Movement. I agree. Uh, yeah, the visual system uh, of humans, and particularly for deer, for evolutionary reasons, is very, very attuned to unexpected movement out of the visual field. Even if the deer isn't looking at you uh, with the part of his, the uh, the field view that, that has high uh, higher resolution and, and better uh, color uh, discrimination, they'll see a movement out there in the, the corner of the eye or the top or bottom of the visual field. And as you notice, as soon as they see something like they'll they'll try to fixate on it. Right. You make a noise. You move suddenly, and they're going to look towards it, and they're going to inspect it very, very carefully. Uh, they've got enough sense not to just run away, but they'll freeze, and then they'll look at it. And what they're doing is uh, moving their eye, their eyes in little, little short movements and taking a sample of each area. It's the same thing we do. Uh, so a hunter learns how to move. A successful hunter learns how to move. Uh, he's uh, very aware of the wind direction, the velocity of the wind. If it's, if it's uh, 
uh, if the wind is blowing, you've got a lot of background movement of the branches and what's left of the leaves this time of year. And it may be more difficult uh, for the um, for a deer to see your movement uh, as opposed to the background movement. And you know, some uh, some hunters probably aren't even aware of how smart they are about this. It's just something you build up over time, and it becomes a competition with the uh, the animal you're trying to hunt. So uh, the the point of all this is you can uh, buy a top of the line tested best in the world camouflage and if you don't know how to hunt it's wasted time you're you're an unsuccessful hunter in an expensive suit of clothes <laughs> now i would i would i would go on a limb to say that i feel like when it comes to animals that don't see in color i would think that mm-hmm. their their movement detection is superior to ours by quite a bit. Uh, well, because a lot of these animals aren't good experimental subjects, it, it's hard to tell exactly, but you're probably right. It's uh, it's very, very important to them. There are more things hunting them than are hunting us unless you're on the battlefield. Yep. Uh, so that movement is, uh, I think that's the biggest thing, movement and the noise that comes with it. And, of course, he's going to try to keep down windows and things like that, but it's, it's movement and noise. Now, one thing, um, I have a, a, a friend of mine who I value his opinion very much for, for super mature animals that are very in tune. And I tried this ex- experiment ex- as well, and it's, it's pretty... Um, it's pretty consistent. I've tried it multiple times. One of the things that I did was, you know, we were talking about um, noise in, in in relation to like a bow going off. And mm-hmm. what I found is, you know, if you're if you're in a spot where there's an animal out there and a noise is made, it's pretty rare that they're reacting to the noise the first time they hear it the first thing they really try to do is pinpoint that noise. And then if there's any noise mm-hmm. following that, then then it cues a reaction. So, you know, sometimes say a you know a bow goes off or say you you know, even if you break a limb, the first thing they're gonna do is they're gonna try to pinpoint where that exact, you know, danger came from, more so than then spin out of the way of it. Now, I think once you've alerted them once or twice, that rule changes. But, you know, I've been in times where I've been on a food source. You know, there's deer out there, and I'll just sit in my stand perfectly quiet. Nothing's keyed up. Nothing's looked at me. And just make a loud clap, but then freeze. Mm Mm-hmm. And everything, you know, and everything's heads are up and they're all looking and then just sitting in that position as still as you possibly can and, and seeing, you know, the effectiveness of what that camo is doing for you at that point. And, uh, and the percentage of times where the animals accept that and go back to what they're doing, it's extremely high and I think surprising to a lot of people, but I think what from an archer's point of view what hurts and um what hurts the bow hunter is when there is a noise like for example a bow going off or you know or something like that but then there's follow-up sound 
like for example, mm-hmm. then they're picking up the arrow coming through the through the air or something like that, which I think they do um, quite often. Um, but do you think do you think the the animals that see in I guess in the same type of eyesight as as what whitetails or elk do you do you think that's do you think that's what's most important even if you are pinpointed for sound i mean don't you think the the effective uh, the effectiveness of the camo if you're busted from sound is absolutely key i mean yeah yeah i, I can tell you a story about that it came from uh some of the professional hunters that uh sitka worked with uh oh uh some years ago when the uh, initial optifate system was being tested. They uh, were out in, probably in Montana somewhere, and uh, had been uh, after elk. And to get to the the hunting area, they'd had to hike through some uh, fields where there were livestock, uh, sitting around chewing grass and and, uh, uh, looking dumb. Uh, And after they finished, they walked back through that area. And the, uh, the, the people in the lead, uh, were the, the cameramen and uh, a couple of people from Gore or Sick or whatever. And, uh, they, of course, made noise and, uh, uh, were quite obvious targets for the cattle. Well, the cattle kind of looked at them and, uh, I guess going through their minds as well as those idiots again. And they went back to chewing their cud. Then when the hunters came, uh, towards the rear of the, uh, the group, uh, the cattle were spooked. Yep. And the, the likely reason is the, uh, the cattle could hear the, uh, the people walking, but they couldn't really fix on them. Mm. And that was frustrating and threatening. Yeah. That's were were the camera people in, in a different type of pattern than the actual hunter. Oh, uh, they, they were just wearing, field clothes oh yeah yep yep yeah so obviously they were unrecognizable so they didn't they were kind of fight or flight i guess weighing out the that's pretty much it yeah do you Mm -hmm. feel do you feel like um from from your i guess your input with the pattern do you feel like there were things with the pattern that you would that you would change do you feel like there could be more more of a separation between the the high tones and the low tones, or do you do you feel like the pattern they have right now is is really the best out there for versatility? I would say from the information we have now, there's no reason to make a change. Uh, now, uh, it, it is important to listen to the feedback from the hunters, and I'm not I'm not talking about some guy who goes out twice a year and, and blasts away at sound shots and things like that. Uh, professional hunters who, who really, really have a good feel for the deer or the elk or, or whatever they're hunting and uh, get their, uh, uh, their impressions. It's hard to test uh, camouflage effectiveness uh, in the field. And that's for scientific and methodological reasons. There are just too many things, too many variables you can't control. Uh, in fact, it's rather, it's difficult to uh, 
uh, test tanks in the field uh, <laughs> under operational conditions for that same reason. So uh, you kind of have to go with uh, with the comments uh, that hunters make. And, yeah, if, if you want to spend the time and the money, you can uh, do variations on the pattern. Uh, one, one thing I would not use as a reason to change a pattern is comments from people on, on how they think it looks. Yep. Because they're not deer. Yeah, I agree with that. And and like I told you at the start of this podcast, I'm I, I feel like I feel like I was doing an injustice to to Sitka as you know, I, I do I just to give you a background, I do a lot of, of product research and a lot of product R and D and I always try to mm-hmm. keep an open mind. You know, if I prefer brand A, I also keep a mind open to brand B and C. Um, one of the things that I never particularly liked just as a, as a, well, at the time I was a non-consumer, but I just liked the appearance of other patterns as it sat on a shelf looking at me compared to, you know, compared to Sika. But once, once I kind of had a half-assed description of why Optifade was designed the way that it was, and then once uh-huh. I actually put it to use and was doing certain things to where I was sitting there fully exposed, looking at something, looking at me and looking around me and thinking, okay, this is plainly a situation where I would have, I've been busted in the past. I should be busted now. And then multiple times, you know, they just, they aren't putting a figure together you know it's obvious they're not Mm -hmm. they're not able to determine a shape that they could identify as a human you know it's it was obvious that they you know they were seeing something they weren't at in any way connecting it to another being to where they would have Mm -hmm. to where they would have to react and i've experienced that twice now with the ev2 pattern and especially with the subalpine pattern just because i have more time behind it um, which I think mm-hmm. that pattern is probably out of all of them. I think it has the best shelf appeal. Um, but I've been made a believer pretty quick that when it comes to actual field application, the EV2 has a very, um, you know, it's got a very solid, I guess, scientific background as well because it's been working on whitetails and. Um, in some of the places I've hunted this year, they're extremely sensitive to to picking people out in trees and knowing that people are hunting them from an elevated position and getting away mm-hmm. with that. Sometimes when they know that's where their danger comes from the most, um, it's pretty impressive. Well, I actually gave away some samples. Uh, my, uh, my wife recently retired uh, – from the uh, federal government, uh, she was a, a lawyer in the Bureau of Indian Affairs up in D.C., and she had a number a number of, of Indian friends who were hunters. And I gave away a few samples to these these people who were very very serious hunters, and they all came back uh, convinced. So that that gave me a good feeling about it. Now, what you say about shelf appeal is very true. And uh, early on in a couple of the designs, the uh, the initial design that tested well just did not have that kind of shelf appeal. 
and in each case, uh, the uh, the hypercell side or whoever was doing the specific design was able to make neutral changes in the design. That is, it didn't affect the uh, uh, the detectability with the uh, uh, the the game animals vision, but made it uh, look a little bit better uh, in the store. Uh, so there, you know, these things have to be considered. But uh, I look at it from uh, not from a sales point of view, but for an effectiveness point of view. And so I sometimes have problems with people who are, who are eyeballing something and saying, no, that doesn't work. And I might add, uh, that's almost driven me nuts over 40 years trying to deal with the Army and the Marine Corps on camouflage patterns. Yeah. Well, what, one of the questions I have, too, and I, for, I meant to ask it earlier, was do you know offhand like what the actual uh, the peripheral visual... Um, percentages for a whitetail compared to a human like up and down and you know horizontally and vertically do you oh sure sure it's most, mostly horizontal when you think about it uh we have our eyes in the front of our head right looking forward uh now that uh i don't know uh maybe the uh, uh descending from animals that uh that's that's swung on jungle vines or whatever you want to have really good depth perception if you're going to be spending your life in trees and whatever. Uh, there are various explanations for it, but uh, we've got a pretty good field of view, but it's more focused forward because that gives us better depth perception. Uh, a deer or any animal like that, the eyes are more to the sides of the head. Right. So that gives you less less overlap in the front, which is where you get depth perception, but it also gives you a much broader field of view. And you can probably go out pretty clearly uh, 70 or 80 degrees from uh, from the front and uh, have a pretty good view of the world. So, yeah, the, uh, the deer has a much wider field of view. Vertically, it's not that much different, but wider. Is it as good as ours? from the deer's point of view. Vertically, is Bay it as good? Is it as good as ours vertically? Uh, it's, it's, I am not certain of the exact metric. I'd have to talk to Jay Knights about it, but it's, uh, vertically it's pretty similar to uh, human. Now, the last question I have here, this is something I've always wondered, and I thought maybe you'd be able to answer it. When you, If you ever drive past a whitetail, they will literally look at you when they first acquire you but then they almost let you pass to a certain to a certain position before they then move and then they'll let you go and then they'll move again have you ever noticed that where you know if you ride by them on a bike for example they may only move their head position two to three times while you pass completely past them you know they're not like a instinctually they're not like a person where if they identify something like well that's a human they don't tend to just sit there and watch you as you go they almost look at you let you get to a certain point relocate to there let you get to a certain point relocate to there why is it that they do that mm-hmm. well uh first of all i i notice that every day our whole neighbor, neighborhood is overrun uh and we know them and they know us uh, they're not, uh, uh, 
they don't abandon caution, but they get used to certain uh, certain kinds of situations and certain kinds of visual events. And eventually, through learning, they will uh, become habituated to them. It's it's not they they don't recognize us as an immediate threat. However, uh, they will not ignore us. I can drive uh, up to my house, and there'll be. Uh, 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 two or three does and uh, a couple of yearlings, uh, and they'll they'll look at me. I'll roll the window down and say hi, and they they look at me, and then they'll shift a little bit uh, where they got a better view of me and go back to whatever they're doing. Usually eating the the, uh, the shrubs I've carefully planted in the yard. Uh, so yeah, they're they they're always aware, but they don't want to get so fixated on one. Uh, one possible threat that they ignore threat, other threats around them. Uh, they're not geniuses, but they're very, very well uh, suited uh, to their environment and the kinds of threats they have to deal with. So, in other words, they're trying to make sure they can still see you, but they're also not wanting to like lose grasp of what they knew was safe before? That's exactly right. It's what we call situational awareness, and it's very, very important for them. It's like uh, it, you can get too fixated on something like those uh, uh, wonderful YouTube uh, vignettes we have of people who are texting, walking down the street, texting, right, <laughs> and run into into the trees or or traffic lights or other people or whatever. They can't afford to do that. Uh, you're never going to see a, a deer trying to text. Uh, they uh, they have to be aware of everything that's going on around them, and I, I don't think they ever lose that sense. You really you you can tame a deer, but you can't really really uh, you can't really domesticate him. Yep. Now, do you feel um, from a from do you have familiarity with the uh, with the turkey's visual? kind of design uh not as much uh not as much they have more color vision sure yep and more uh, magn more magnification uh, that is correct and their their uh, bird uh bird vision is actually pretty good uh we have uh only these only three peak color sensitivities uh a uh, uh a duck for example will have four peak sensitivities. Uh, colors are very, very important for them. And uh, they tend to have a focal area right in the center of the, the field of vision. So they're very unlike deer. What for do they see? Uh, I honestly don't recall. I'd have to uh, go call up some, some paper online. Uh, we have a kind of a, a red, green, and blue yep, field. Yep. Uh, they have a fourth, and I've, I've forgotten where it is. I think it's out in the yellow spectrum somewhere. It's okay. something that's of importance to them, and I don't know why. Okay. All right. Well, I've, uh, I, man, we're uh, 45 minutes in. I appreciate your time, too. This was really, really awesome for me. Um, and definitely, I know you don't know who I am, but um, I can certainly tell you I'm very impressed with the input that you gave to the conception of this design and 
I'm, I am a believer. I couldn't be happier with, with this product. And honestly, the reason I'm don't, it's one of the products where I've been doing the most detailed podcast for in the last several Mm -hmm. months, uh, just because I just feel like this was a huge gap in something that I had education on. And I'm kind of disappointed in myself for not being, for not, diving into this whole field more than what I did in the past. And I feel like I'm having more success because I'm, because I'm in products that are working better for the same level of, you know, I guess experience that I personally have as a hunter. So, um, I really value your time and my hats off to, to you guys for coming out with something that's truly effective in the field. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I have to say this is not something I get to work into a conversation very often. Uh, and uh, since I semi-retired uh, down here in Georgia, I don't get a talk uh, chance to talk to uh, the scientists and soldiers and whatever that I, I used to work with more often. Uh, but it's it's been one of my major uh, interests and contributions in uh, 50 years of service, so... Uh, Thank you for the chance to talk about it. Yes, sir. And I definitely appreciate uh, your service as well. So many of our followers are, are service men and women, and I could not sure I could not thank all of you enough and really, really uh, value everything that you did for the country and continue to do every day. So thank you for that as well. Well, and, and thank you for listening to me. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another Knock On Podcast. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com